0: On the line with us today, Joel Richard Paul, author of Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. You know, Joel, in the uh, publicity for this book, um, they refer to Webster as the often overlooked titan of US history. And I thought, well, that could be. But then I thought, wait a minute. What about the devil and Daniel Webster? You know, that was a that was a movie and a story and all that. So he hasn't been totally forgotten. But what's your take on that? Well, you know, Steve, I also love that movie
1: and love that short story um, about how Daniel Webster managed to defeat the devil in debate. And I was kind of curious to know more about Daniel Webster myself. When I mentioned Daniel Webster to most people, they think he's the guy who wrote the dictionary. Of but course. actually, <laughs> uh, Daniel Webster for 40 years from 1812 to 1852 was one of the leading statesmen in our country. Uh, He was uh, the foremost advocate of the Constitution before the Supreme Court. He was known as the defender of the Constitution. He was a Congressman and a Senator from Massachusetts. He was twice the Secretary of State, four times a presidential candidate. But most of all, Daniel Webster was known throughout the United States and really throughout the world as the leading orator of the English language. And it was through his speeches, and his oratory, that he was able to really shape our ideas of what it meant to be an American.
0: And that was, and the point I think your book makes, and I think people probably forget this or didn't, didn't know this, was that in his time, and we're talking about the beginning, 1812 in that era, people didn't think of themselves as American, but as Virginians or New Englanders or, you know, a region. was regionalism i I think that's a point made by your book right exactly yeah um
1: the uh initially there was this notion that you were just a member of your own sovereign state and that the constitution was nothing more than a compact of states and uh there was john c calhoun who was arguing for regionalism that the south was sort of one entity um there were other competing expressions of nationalism. Um, And the most prominent of these became sort of Andrew Jackson's ideas about in order to be an American, you had to be a white European and that everybody else was just sort of in the way. Mexican Americans, uh, uh, enslaved people, indigenous tribal nations. They were just sort of a hindrance to our progress in Jackson's view. Webster pushes back against this idea and popularizes the notion that the Constitution made us one nation, all Americans, regardless of our race, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our faith, our region of the country, that we are all Americans, one country, united, indivisible. And it was that idea that really captured people's imaginations and transformed the, what we think of today as who is an American.
0: We're talking with Joel Richard Paul, author of Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. And Joel, you know, I, I didn't realize this. I'm originally from uh, Boston. I, I lived in Peoria now a long time, but but originally grew up in Boston. And I did not know this, uh, of course, being an ignorant kid, uh, you know, one doesn't always take notice of what's around him. But your book makes a good point out of I don't know that it was a possibility. I'll let you talk to that. But that New England almost broke off. And, uh, you know, early on and then decided, well, maybe we just want to be a group of uh, our states here. You know, they had uh, some kind of conference and I -hmm. guess that didn't go well. But, uh, you know, then I started thinking, yeah, you know, the United States could have wound up like Europe, where we would have had one country up here in New England, another one down there in the south. You know, who knows what would go on in the west. But uh, that didn't work. That didn't work, did it? The New England thing. Well, yes. So uh, there was a kind of, um,
1: there was great deal of uncertainty about what the boundaries of the United States were, first of all. It wasn't clear, even at the start of our revolution, whether Canada would become one of the states of the United States or not, whether they were going to be in a different direction. Uh, The border between Canada and New England was not decided at all until Webster, as Secretary of State, negotiated a boundary settlement. Um, and New England itself uh, in 1850 at the Hartford Convention considered breaking off from the rest of the country because the War of 1812 was not going so well. Uh, it was known as Madison's War. And it was really a, a war against New England because it, was, it cut off all of the shipping uh, and the maritime trade that was so important to the economy in New England. Um, And the New England states didn't want to have any part of the Southern slave states. So there were lots of reasons why they might have left the Union. Webster was sort of, I guess, uh, he was ambivalent, is the best way to put it, about that question, about, about New England breaking off from the Union. He did not endorse the idea, but he didn't necessarily oppose it. And ultimately, the New Englanders were defeated, once the War of 1812 was settled, the, the issue kind of went away. So they sort of stuck it out. And then, of course, the Southern states began to threaten the Union as they felt the institution of slavery was threatened and the issue arose as to whether or not slavery would be allowed to expand into the Western territories.
0: Talking with Joel Richard Paul, author of Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. And Joel, um, you have- and uh, this always comes up, Washington Irving. Um, Was there symbolism in that story of the headless horseman? Because I I got the sense that it was in there for a reason that you brought that up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I talk uh, a lot in the book about cultural
1: nationalism, about uh, different writers of the period um, who in the first half of the 19th century who had different ideas about what it meant to be an American. And one of the issues that uh, kind of one of the themes that runs through a lot of their writing is this notion of uh, the forest, um, the territory, the land kind of defining who we are. And um, there's a kind of uh, almost a mysticism about the notion of the the forest as a place. (laughs) <laughs> really? So, so, so I was at my iPhone or was it your computer? Oh, I, I don't, don't know. know. I, I have okay. no
0: idea. <laughs> okay.
1: I yes. apologize. So how oh, far no, did we a, get?
0: No problem. Uh, so, you were talking about the mysticism of the forest. with oh, okay. the writers. Yeah.
1: Okay. So the, uh, the story of Ichabod Crane is really a story about the conflict between the cultural elite and the common person. The Ichabod Crane is kind of uh, the uh, overly educated uh, uh, pedagogue who is uh, kind of a foolish person who doesn't have any common sense, and uh, he ultimately is frightened away by the forest.
0: Uh, The one thing I another thing I shouldn't say one thing the eighteen nineteen panic, and and I was (laughs) taken by that because. I thought, well, first of all, sim- I'll let you tell me similarities to today. I mean, in, in terms of the rich get richer and, and everyone else is kind of scrounging around or, or what, what's your give us a little take on the 1819 panic, because I don't think people are fully aware of that they, they always hear about the depression uh, right. from, you know, 29 on. But this one was the previous century and pretty bad. Huh? Well, uh,
1: there were two panics. Okay. Uh, during okay. the Jacksonian era, there was the 1819 Panic and the 1837 Panic. The 1819 Panic helped really uh, propel Andrew Jackson to office, and the 1837 Panic was a consequence of Andrew Jackson's irresponsible economic policies. But uh, these two panics, I think, are analogous somewhat to what we are presently facing in the in the, in the economy because they were both closely connected to globalization. That as the United States became more globalized, as we were engaging in trade, we were much more dependent on what other countries were doing. And when the Bank of England decided that they wanted to restrict the money supply, it had consequences on our economy as well. Uh, Or when the uh, wheat Harvest in Europe was was bad, or when the, when the wheat harvest in Europe was good, it affected prices of wheat in the United States. And so, the um, and and of course, the Napoleonic Wars also had impact an impact on the American economy. So our economy was not independent; it, our economy was very much interdependent, and people were reacting in part against the same forces of globalization that I think have had a role today in shaping our ideas about um, uh, nationalism, that there was a sense that we were losing control uh, of our own destiny. And when that happens, people oftentimes resort to uh, ideas about uh, 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 racial or cultural superiority and exclusionary policies. Um, which is part of what I think we see happening in American politics today.
0: And that, you know, you talk about the globalization. I think I learned too that uh, you have in there at some point, and I, I'll let you tell me at what point in the, in the uh, 1800s this was, but that Southern cotton um, was, was, uh, took a hit because India was producing cotton at a lower rate and I thought, well, there's globalization right there at a time when you know perhaps we weren't thinking about it. Sure, well, the, the cotton prices were very
1: significant in America at the time. Uh, as the British decided that they could do better with Indian cotton, they uh, turned to the Indian market that affected prices of cotton in the United States. Uh, That also had consequences on the manufacturing industry in New England that was very dependent on cotton. And so, um, you know, we were very much an interdependent economy then, as we are now. And it had consequences on our economy. And of course, as the economic conditions in the South worsened, it also led to many Southerners calling for. Uh, secession from the Union. John C. Calhoun accused the northern states of trying to impoverish the southern states. Um, But really, it was a consequence of the larger international global scene, not the policies of the north that were affecting the
0: southern economy. Talking with Joe Richard Paul, author of Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism um joel how about this um right now we've got a very you know we're coming up to another election a lot of division i don't think we need to you know <laughs> that it's, everything seems to be 50 50 split state by state or, or at least something close to that uh, do we need do we need a daniel webster again here i mean does somebody to speak on behalf of nationalism in your mind
1: well you know a recent new york times poll showed that more than 70% of the American people believe that democracy is now threatened. Uh, We're very much divided by the vexing problems about race and national identity once again. And there's a tremendous need, I think, for statesmanship, for political leaders who will bring the country together, who will find some consensus. Daniel Webster was that guy in the 19th century. Uh, And he was willing ultimately to sacrifice his own political ambitions in order to save the Union, which he did in the Compromise of 1850. Compromise of 1850 was very difficult compromise for Daniel Webster to accept as a Massachusetts Senator. Um, But uh, the Southern states were threatened to secede unless the West was opened up to slavery and the North did not want that to happen. And what, what Webster ultimately agreed to was that in exchange for keeping the West free, uh, the North would agree to enforce the Fugitive Slave Laws. The Fugitive Slave Laws were an incredibly harsh measure that meant that African-Americans were denied a due process and in many cases were kidnapped and forced into slavery, but the, the price of keeping the union together was the enforcement of the fugitive slave laws. And Webster believed that even though he, was, he had made his career opposing slavery, he believed that the only way to end slavery ultimately was through the union, that the union was the vehicle for, for ending slavery. He said famously that liberty and union now and forever, one and inseparable. And he said that knowing that a large portion of us were enslaved, but he believed that the union would end slavery. It was the same idea that that Lincoln had. And in fact, Lincoln and Webster were political allies. They both supported the Compromise of 1850. It ended the political career of Daniel Webster, but Lincoln ultimately went on um, with the support of a growing anti-slavery movement uh, to become the Republican uh, presidential candidate.
0: And, yeah, and I, I want to say the rest is history, but I think we're still rolling with that one. So, well, we, we are uh, I think we're, we're just about out of time, Joel. Uh, any last things on this book? I mean, were there any revelations to you? Obviously, you're very steeped in knowledge on the Constitution and history. But as you went through Danny Webster's career, were there any surprises for you? Well, I think the most surprising episode or the most interesting episode for me was
1: um which explains why he was called Dan- Godlike Daniel, uh, was when he spoke at the dedication of the, um, of the Bunker Hill monument. Uh, this was 50 years after the Bunker Hill battle. And uh, he spoke with uh, General Lafayette in attendance when Lafayette was touring the country. Uh, he had a crowd of about 20,000 people outside. And they had all come to hear Daniel Webster speak because he was such a great orator. And when he got up to speak, the crowd was so excited that they knocked down the tent, which was covering part of the crowd. And the crowd was suddenly engulfed in this tent and there was panic and people were injured. and People were running around screaming. And the marshal uh, said to Webster, well, you know, that's it, we can't, we can't go further. And Webster said, you know, nothing is impossible. And he shouted out to the crowd, be silent. And his voice was so powerful. It was like hearing from God. And the crowd fell silent and they sat down and Webster restored order. And he was able to give his speech, which lasted several hours. And they were hypnotized by it. They were absolutely mesmerized by his words, which were transformative. And it was that kind of power as an orator that that propelled him and that that helped him to reshape what America is today. School children in America were taught to recite excerpts of Webster's speeches. That was how they learned about American nationalism. For almost a hundred years, every school child in America was expected to, to, to memorize and recite excerpts of his speeches. He educated the generation of men who went on to fight and win the civil war. He shaped Lincoln's thinking. He was the guy that made it possible to hold the union together. And that's the kind of leadership that unfortunately we desperately need today.
0: Joel, Richard, Paul, we thank you. Author of Indivisible. That's the book about Daniel Webster and birth of American nationalism. We wish you well, Joel. Thank you so much for your time and fascinating history. and. Yeah, let's look for another Daniel Webster here. We need him bad. Thanks so much, Steve, for having me. Take care now.